Hello and welcome to A Fine Balance, the podcast that explores work-life balance choices one story at a time. This is a podcast about work, life and the pursuit of balance, exploring the reasons behind the choices that individuals make when balancing work with everything else in their lives. Understanding how we work and why we prioritise some things over others can help make sense of work-life balance choices. This podcast seeks to showcase the diverse ways that people flex work around life and life around work to learn from one another and celebrate our differences. I'm your host, Dahlia Wittenberg, creator of the blog, A Fine Balance. In each podcast, I'll be inviting my guests to put a figure on their current work to life ratio. Of course, quantifying something this multifaceted isn't a science, but it's a good place to start for getting to the heart of their story. My guest today is Tom McLaughlin, former Managing Director of European Government Relations for a Global Managing Consultancy. Now retired, Tom works in a voluntary capacity for causes close to his heart, such as epilepsy, loneliness and crisis intervention. He brings to these charities his consultancy, coaching and public speaking skills, as well as his knowledge of governance and board level management. Tom's career came to an abrupt end in 2020 when he suffered an episode of convulsive status epilepticus, a sudden and extreme series of seizures. He spent time in intensive care on a ventilator and after a period of treatment in convalescence made a remarkably near full physical recovery, though he continues to work on his cognitive and mental health. The experience was enough of a trigger to persuade him to bring forward his planned early retirement with almost immediate effect. I had the pleasure of interviewing Tom last summer to feature on the blog A Fine Balance. He was remarkably upbeat about the predicament he found himself in, telling me I'm the luckiest chap on the planet, I have a wonderful family around me, I earned more than I thought I'd ever earn in my life, and now's the chance to give back. And giving back is what drives him now in retirement, to think in terms of his work-life balance to feel the sense of purpose that used to motivate him when he was working full time, to throw himself into his work, come what may. Tom talked to me about the duplicity of retirement, both the sense of liberation, of only taking responsibility for the things that matter to him, and the sense of uselessness, having to reevaluate and identify what his value is to society. Tom testifies that weighing up his work-life ratio is now just as applicable as it was before he retired. There's a point, there's a journey, there's a story, he said. I am so grateful that Tom decided to share that story with me on the blog, to take me on that journey with him, if you will. Our conversation left me with lots of food for thought about the opportunities and challenges of balancing priorities during these two life stages, one's career peak and their career's end, and all the life milestones that occur in between. So I'm even more delighted that he's agreed to join me on my podcast today to delve deeper into his story and to share the wisdom and insight that he's gleaned from his experiences. Tom McLaughlin, welcome to A Fine Balance, the podcast. Hello, darling, and thank you for that. Um, I think that was £100 well spent by me. That was a lovely (laughs) introduction. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So, Tom, before we delve in, um, I'd um, just like to reflect on the work-to-life ratio that you told me when we spoke um about this time last year actually um at that time do you remember what it was and can you tell me whether that figure still applies to your work-life balance i think the figure was probably well over 50 percent work um and if i reflect now the only real difference is i don't get paid 
Um, and I don't say that in a nasty way because I absolutely adore what I'm doing. Um, but my, my work-life balance really has merged into 100% of both um, with the focus being on, on managing the passions in between just to make sure that I don't uh, burn out um, and my wife helps to keep me on the straight and narrow. That's interesting. So those tendencies to work haven't left you then? Not in the slightest. Um, I One of the things I, I do a lot more of now than when we first spoke is uh, crisis volunteering. And I get a, an amazing kick out of that. It's, it's the feedback and the help that you're providing for people um, is very important. The insight it gives you onto the sorry state of many bits of our society is very important. And it's easy just to, to keep working and to keep at it um, because there's a positive. And you, I don't finish a shift thinking I'm exhausted. I finish a shift feeling revitalized. And so I'm probably doing 25 to 30 hours a week um, of that. And I, I hope the supervisors aren't listening in because I'm only supposed to do 16. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually look, I look back on the interview that I wrote up of you and your, the ratio you gave at that time was 25 to 75. Right. So that was 25 on the work side and 75 on the life. But towards the end of the interview, you did say that you wanted to increase that work part. I think it was more health related that you had kept it so low and you were still working on your recovery. Does exactly. That, does that give you a sense of satisfaction to have kind of built up that work side of the ratio? Um, I'd like to say yes. Um, I have a feeling it's more about me. And it's a, the natural thing for me to do is to throw myself into things that I'm really, that I really care about. Um, and I think, I'm glad you reminded me about the 25 to 75 point. Um, when I compare now, I'm looking back to before ICU um, and when I was probably doing 70, 75% work and 25% life and then circumstances flipped that around quite drastically. Um, so thank, thank you for that clarification. I want to talk about this, this kind of the, the way that you're drawn to work and, and you didn't use the word workaholic when we spoke actually. So I, I'm, I'm mindful not to insert that word and, and you know, put it in your mouth if you like, but um, the way you described your compulsion towards work and the way that you would prioritise work given the choice during your career was really notable. And I've, I, this is something that I've come across quite a lot recently. And I, I think that I've noticed there's like an association of shame towards workaholism or that making that choice to spend more time at work than doing other things in life whether it's whether it's that person feeling like they can't admit to that or that it's any less than if they were devoting their time to their life or their partner admonishing them for not spending more time with the family um can you just describe to me your experience of 
of choosing work over life when you're in the in the peak of your career um, and how you felt about that well I'll tell you how I'm feeling right now and that's lots of butterflies in my stomach because the way you've put it is very true but it's not the way I've ever regarded it I don't view myself as a workaholic and I haven't viewed my I haven't consciously viewed myself as putting work above family in that the things that I do that we're referring to as work are passions. And so let's look at the current time. I'm, I'm helping other people and I'm passionate about it and I'm giving. It's not a gain for myself. This is how I, and I don't actually rationalize it. It's just, that's what's happen, happening. If I step back and observe the situation, then I try and spend my waking hours um, helping. And the challenge I've got is to make sure that I don't forget that I've got a family as well. And I need to be doing that at home. <laughs> um, and that's the difficulty. But when you talk about workaholism, golly, that, that gives me butterflies and you're helping me see myself as, a, as others might see me. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that is how you're seen necessarily. It's just, let's take your retirement, how you're choosing to spend your time in retirement, for example. Um, I think choosing work over life doesn't mean choosing work over family. But I think there would be plenty of people who would reach retirement and say, right, now I'm going to go on a cruise. I'm going to spend time sitting in a cafe or I don't know what people do in retirement I mean I think I know lots of people have got a list of things they want to do in their retirement um whereas you are leaning more towards I know you're helping people but it, it it's kind of a form of work or do you not see it that way no I do see it as a form of work and I guess context is important here um I would have marked my retirement by going on a walking holiday in Japan with Barbara my wife but um, I went into ICU um, a few weeks before lockdown began. Um, and so the first year or two um, of my retirement, I've not been able to do anything. Um, I met people for the first time because I'm also in the, I was in the shielding group. Um, so I, I met people for a, a dinner at a restaurant for the first time last weekend um so i've i've had to fill my time if you look at it from that perspective yeah. i didn't really have much alternative yeah and it's such a constructive way to spend your time then if you didn't have a choice to go out and and do things that you enjoy maybe i get it from my mum my mum was like that and mm. maybe that's where it, it comes from but it's if i have guilt it's about getting um, a sense of um, pride out of what I do. You know, if I'm doing some crisis volunteering and I'm, you know, quite often about 40% of my calls are to do with suicide. Um, it's, it's not nice to say that you feel proud about that. But if I'm honest, if um, was successful in the conversations, then you do feel proud. 
um, you do feel when you get little bits of feedback from people and the things you say, that does make you think, I've got purpose now. Yeah. And I had purpose before, but now it's just changed. And I, I think you can deal with anything as long as you've got purpose. Um, and you can be passionate about that or not. But if you have purpose, then, then you can deal with most stuff. How do you think people find their purpose? It finds them. But they have to be, I think they have to be alert to the possibility. Um, when I was working, we always used to talk about the importance of knowing how to spot an opportunity. There's nothing worse. And we, we, there were things called iWICs, I Wish I News. Okay. The, uh, the sales guys. And they'd be having their planning meetings and they, they had IWICs. And it was only when they started to share them with us in government affairs that we were really able to help. Because otherwise I might have spent half the day with somebody who was on an IWIC list and I didn't know. Um, so next time that, that, that found me. Um, now taking it into finding your purpose. I think it's about finding time in your diary. Um, if you're still working at least 15 minutes, twice a week where you reflect, look at what you've done, look at what you've got a kick out of not focusing on what went badly, focus on what went well, identify those strengths and then bear them in mind. Um, and then you will spot the opportunities and those opportunities will bring purpose. Back, back to this IWICS, is it, does it, did you mean um, I wish I knew a person or I wish I knew a thing or could be either? Imagine, imagine a planning conversation and how many times do people say, oh, I wish I knew that or I wish I knew them or mm. I wish I knew how long that had le got left to run. Or I wish I knew what Boris was going to do next. <laughs> IWICs aren't always deliverable. Um, <laughs> but those are the IWICs. And, and often I found our role was to, to understand what other people's IWICs were and yeah. then to, to, to provide them. So are you suggesting in pursuit of your purpose or understanding your purpose, you should kind of have your own IWICs. Yeah, why not? Why not ask yourself, I wish I knew what it was about work that I loved, that I'd like to reduce down to its basic elements and carry that with me through the rest of my life. And how might it reappear? It's not going to come back as a paid job where you're a management consultant, but your strategic thinking, for instance, may be something that a charity is really looking out for. Um, there's a whole host of things. Um, but I, I think it is a question of connecting what you've done with what you're going to do in the future, because that's the, the, you know, that's the journey you're on. Yeah. The door doesn't shut when you retire. You just don't get the paycheck. Yeah. Well, before we before we go too deep into work-life balance in retirement, which I think is a really interesting subject in itself, and you are the only person that I've interviewed on my 
on my for my blog that is retired just for the mm-hmm. record um but let's just kind of cast you back to the time when you were working full-time busy in your career how what was the thought process going through your mind when you could when you had like those crossroads of deciding how to prioritize your time whether you would you know leave work to go and meet a friend or bath your kids or but you would choose work over life I, I don't know maybe give me an example of a time where you kind of remember having to make a decision I'm, I'm just trying to get into the mentality of choosing work and weighing a heavier ratio on the side of work than life um I'm not sure how often I consciously made the decision and and that's not a good thing to admit to uh, it's an honest thing but I think what probably happened was that I got so immersed in what I was doing and I remember I've been paid for a hobby all my life I, I, I absolutely adore what I do um, uh, or did um, and so it was. There was never a point, I think, where I sat down and thought, "Shall I go home now, um, or shall I, shall I stay in the office?" If there were occasion, because I would be following something that was a very active issue. So in Japan, for instance, when I was at the embassy, we we had what was the UK Japan uh, preeminent bilateral issue. Um, I was the atomic energy counselor and we were shipping plutonium fuel to Japan and it got there and there'd been issues with the testing of the fuel. And so it had to come back and I've summarized what was a two year story because it included the U S the France, Japan, the South Pacific, um, a whole host of different stakeholders, um, a crazy number of time zones, And I was just immersed in that. It was only afterwards that I realized that I had, um, through my, and I'm using the word carefully, but through my ignorance, I'd failed to consider what was happening back at home. Um, And if I had stopped and thought about it, I'd like to have thought that I'd have chosen work. Uh, I'd have chosen home more often than I chose work but I wasn't that disciplined it's really um you've reminded me of something that comes up quite often when I talk to people about work-life balance I think there are two words really that that strike me as being relevant here and the first is intentional and so you weren't being intentional from what you described you were uh, drawn into your work through your passion and and you were just so immersed you weren't really looking up and the second word that you just mentioned there is discipline and I think being disciplined is something that often comes up when I talk to people about work-life balance and setting boundaries and that is being really intentional about the boundaries that you set between your work and other things in your life so I think being intentional and having the discipline to then follow through and 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 structure your time in such a way that you feel content with your work-life balance uh, is something that really helps people find the balance that's right for them. But clearly, it's not an easy thing to do. Mm. 
when I'm when I interviewed you, I'm going to quote you now. Hold on, where is the quote? That oh, when you said to me, um, "Would I have given that up? Do I wish I'd made other choices?" I'd like to say yes, but it's tough. I got such a buzz from the work I did. Could I honestly say I wouldn't live through that again? So there's a dilemma there, isn't it? No. Actually, I don't no? think there is. That I've I've thought about that phrase and that part of the discussion a lot. And I think the truth is that I'd do the same again because I got so much out of it. And I've rationalised it since. Um, you know, we, we've survived as a family. Uh, came back with an extra child and I went with. Uh, <laughs> it, I, I, I made friends that I've kept forever. I, I learned skills, had experiences that have stayed with me. Um, but there was, there was a price to pay. And that, and, and that was tough at that point that was that was tough so if there could be a change it would be I'd be doing exactly the same but without a price <laughs> <laughs> have it all yeah yeah I it, it's great to hear you talk about this though because I think so often when I discuss work-life balance with people there's the implication that um you can have a work-life balance by reducing the work side and increasing the life side but then that doesn't really take account of the fact that some people want to work more than other stuff, that, that it would make that choice. And loving what you do and the job that you do is also something to be proud of, not necessarily something to be embarrassed of or feel like you're not balancing things well. It's a great point. And you've, you've reminded me of a, of a story um, that's from about 12 or 13 years ago when I started photography. I'd just gone to work at the consultancy and it was famous for um, people working very long hours. And I realized I needed something so that I could escape from work. So big ticks there, Tom. Good thing. <laughs> and so I chose photography. And I'd never shown a creative bent at all but I loved it and I got immediate feedback and I like feedback fantastic um, but what happened I worked the same I just slept less right so that was the cost but that was the cost okay and everything else I'd done before remained the same and then I ate into my sleeping time because of the photography um so I, it isn't, you're so right, it's not this sort of easy calculation. You have to manage it really carefully. And that's the whole point about managing your passions. Do you think you make time for the things that bring you joy then? No, and you're beginning to sound like my therapist. Oh, oh no, sorry. <laughs> no. Um, when I, 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 I went into quite a deep bout of depression, actually just before intensive care, but then especially afterwards, and she was helping me um, recover. And she was fantastic. And she used to get me to review a day under three different headings. 
um, and I always forget them all, but those, you know, one was around achievements and one was about pleasure and there was something else. Um, and the box that was never full was pleasure. Um, and I didn't realize it until even when I filled it in, I didn't notice. And it was her that drew my attention to it. And she said, you really do need to think about consciously doing things that are for your pleasure. And even as I say that now, I get butterflies again, because I love doing things that are for the pleasure of me and Barbara, or me and someone else. But, you know, I haven't picked up a camera in about two years and I haven't and before that it was another two years I've lost the photography mojo and I love photography I used to raise money for charities through it so I need you know that's a the pleasure side of things is really important you're listening to a fine balance with me Dahlia Wittenberg my guest this episode is Tom McLaughlin, a retired government relations advisor who now works voluntarily for a crisis intervention charity. I was keen to discuss in more depth Tom's vantage point of looking back with hindsight at the work-life balance choices he made in the height of his career. My line of questioning, I'll admit, was a little clumsy, but the answers that Tom gave were so insightful that I haven't edited too much out. We also went on to speak about burnout and about imposter syndrome and how contradictory that can seem in people that are so focused on their work and so successful. Again, it was interesting to hear Tom's reflections on this from the perspective of looking back. What surfaced was also the realisation that retirement doesn't mark the end of pursuing work-life balance or of burnout or imposter syndrome for that matter. Anyway, enough from me, back to the episode. Do you think your sons have learned from your approach to work? Do you think they, I mean, sorry, I know this is quite personal. I'm just kind of trying to think how, um, how other people around you might have felt by your attitude to work growing up, whether it's something that they might want to emulate or whether it's something they would want to go the opposite direction in. Because not everybody finds it hard to find something that, you know, spend time on things that they enjoy, I suppose. Um, and I tell you, the reason why I'm asking this is because I think a lot of people, when they, they talk about their work-life balance or when they think about how much time they spend at work versus other things in their life, part of the guilt, and often this comes through when I interview working mothers, part of the guilt is the time they're not spending with their families. And there's a bit of a, a tension between wanting to be a positive role model for your children and having a career but also giving yourself to them. So it's interesting to speak to somebody that's kind of come out the other side and think, actually, how do your children interpret it? Do they look at it and think, oh, that's great that my parent achieved so much and did this for their career? Or do they look back and think, oh, gosh, I wouldn't do that myself or I wish they'd been around more? Or, you know, I'm just trying to think, is there a way of thinking about this that could be helpful to somebody that's kind of in the thick of it now in their career? Yeah. Um... I think my wife, Barbara, is really important to this as well. You know, if, if it had just been me and the boys, it would be a lot easier to answer. Um, but they've got 
my, my wife is very different in her approach to me. She's much more structured, much more structured. Um, uh, she works long hours, works crazy hours sometimes, but is more structured in her approach. Um, so they see two people, um, but they've seen me being the person out working the most. Um, uh, only because Barbara took a conscious decision that she wanted to be with the children for a couple of years each time. Um, if I look at them, the youngest probably is has seen how I lived and doesn't want it. He's much more focused on looking looking for a role that he's passionate about. So I think he'll get that from me and with the caring elements from it, but equally wanting to set very clear boundaries between work and life, very clear boundaries. You know, he could almost get you down to the minute of how long he's prepared to work for. Mm. So that's him. The eldest, uh, I think, he probably works more like I did. Um, he's in a profession similar to mine, although he's also much more on the media side and global. And so, um, you know, his, his phone is on all the time. Um, and he will be, he will tend toward my working style. Yeah. So I suppose it's just entirely individual. And I guess you're influenced by your parents to a degree, but then you you figure out your own path as well, I suppose, if you're saying you're two, <laughs> you're two sons well, in two different directions. Um, maybe there's not, maybe we put too much pressure on ourselves as parents to think about how our work-life balance affects our children. That, that's, that's true. Um, I think as long as they know that, you will always be there for them. But there is another side to this, which is we as parents want to enjoy some of the special moments. And if we're not careful, we can miss them. Um, yeah. I, I saw my eldest when he first walked. We were in a queue at Ikea and he just wandered off to the cafe. <laughs> and... But I didn't see my youngest when he first walked. Yeah. And and I hate that. And I and I see some photos now of when we were in Japan. Um, Barbara and the kids would come back to Europe for holidays. And you know, if I'm feeling in a if I'm feeling a bit down, if I see those photographs where they're in Europe with other relatives having a great time. Mm -hmm. I know I'm back in Japan. Well, actually, no, I don't think I was back in Japan working. I think I regret not having been there with them. Yeah. But there's nothing, you know, Barbara would say it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. But I, I do think, though, as a parent, I think that on the one hand, you want to be there for your children and give them the best childhood that you're able to and at the same time, you want to have the best experience of parenthood for yourself as well. Yeah. And I think often that comes second, or you don't really put that in front of mind. But actually, me going to see my child 
you know sing in a school assembly you know I know that it's good for them that I'm in the audience but actually as a parent that that brings me joy to to do that so I guess the you, you you're missing out on those European holidays let's say I suppose that was as much a loss for you as it might have been for the children I mean if you know if you had a choice I guess but there was was probably a good reason why you made that decision at the time yeah it's plutonium Uh, (laughs) (laughs) if if um I guess if there is a learning experience for me and this might sound a a little bit um sarcastic but it's get a dog I I haven't (laughs) had dogs until four or five years ago and I suddenly realized you know if I'd have had the dogs before I'd had kids Gosh, what a balanced approach you do you have with dogs. You 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 reward them for doing well. You don't tell them off. Yeah. Praise their strengths. You find fun in their fun. You yep. spend time together. Gosh, it, we we should Boris should start a new program. <laughs> invests in one or two job dogs for each household. Free <laughs> childbirth. Honestly, it will work. I tell you. I mean, you're talking to you're, you're preaching to the converted here because we've literally just acquired a dog in the last six months, and I was very, very reluctant, not at all interested. But when I read the instruction book about how to how to train a puppy, it's pretty much you. I should have read that when I was training my toddlers to do exactly. what I wanted them to do. <laughs> the receipts, <laughs> and if I'm ever PM, you can claim. Yeah, and I think dogs just have an, an amazing sense of the present. They just, yeah. they're in the moment. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm learning so much through having a dog, and, and I think you're right. I think it has an amazing impact. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we're veering off um, off the subject of work. Like that. This is not a pet, a pet podcast. Um, well, you need three dogs. Work, <laughs> three. life, oh. and balance. <laughs> um my interview with you initially you mentioned besides being totally immersed in your job you also experienced imposter syndrome which is almost like a contradiction in terms in a way in how I'm trying to understand how you felt like an imposter when you were so engrossed in your career and you were so knowledgeable even in your spare time you would be reading about politics so how what does imposter syndrome mean to you or what did it mean to you and and how do you rationalize it um it meant to me and i still have it um it was an upwards looking thing um so i i never felt imposter syndrome when i was i i I used to be the managing director that welcomed all of our new recruits um, I never felt imposter syndrome then, but if I was presenting to groups of people that included people senior to me, um, or actually if I was presenting to anyone and I knew that they really, really thought that I knew all the answers, then I struggled um, and I, I'd, get, I'd get very anxious about it. Um, I used to have to present to the chief operating officer, just an update. And he and I would get on really well outside of these meetings. And in the meetings, I think we got on really well as as well. However, 
the preparation for those, the fear, the panic was, um, was very real. And I think back to it now, I've mentioned butterflies a lot in our chats, but yeah. they've come back big time. And it, and it was something that I struggled to cope with. And what made it more difficult was I'd talk to people about it and it would almost be disregarded. No, not you, Tom. You do great presentations. Yeah. You're so confident. And I thought, if only they could know the truth. But what, what was the... What was the thought process, though? What were you telling yourself that others didn't see? I think part of it was the um, the performance regime, which was intense every year. It, and it took about three or four months. And every year, a certain number of people would be cancelled out of the company. Um People would be laddered, i.e. There's, there's a ladder, someone's got to sit on every rung, mm -hmm. no choice. Who's on the bottom rung? Well, thank you. We're not saying you're the worst, but we're saying they've all been better than you, and you're out. Now, I'm, I'm being very harsh in putting it like that, because it's done with a much more human touch. And in fact, I'm not sure that the laddering happens as much now anyway. Um, but I was in a part of the business that was the rest of the managing directors were earning income for the firm, mm. um, direct income. I was contributing to that through um, the landscape and the ecosystem uh, that they were operating in. Um, but it meant that every time I survived a, a performance round, I knew that there was a friend going who'd brought money in who didn't. Mm. Um, and so I used to hate those regimes every single year. I hated it. Uh, so they changed it. They got rid of it completely. And then they, they focused much more on a strength-based performance regime. And I fell in love with that and got trained up as a coach. It was night and day. But the imposter syndrome bit, presentations to senior staff, um, thoughts that, you know, one day I'm going to get caught out. Um, yeah, other people have said that. What does that mean, get caught out? What do you mean by that? Well, it's usually, you know, you, you hear people give you positive feedback. And there comes a point when you have to accept it. Mm. But one day I'll get caught out. <laughs> Do you think it's healthy to feel a little bit of that? I think everybody kind of will understand how that feels a little bit. It depends how far it goes. Um, a little bit, perhaps. Um, there's a lot of these things that, you know, too much of them is, is bad. So like stress, if you, if you look at the stress charts, people perform at their best when they're approaching peak stress. But when you get to peak stress, you don't come down gently, you drop off a cliff um, and people have breakdowns. So as managers and leaders, on the one hand, we want our people to be performing really, really well, and that takes them up the stress curve. Yeah. But on the other, 
as carers for our people, we don't want them to fall off the edge. Mm. So a little bit of stress is okay. A little bit of imposter syndrome is okay. Yeah, in moderation. But in moderation. And I, and I fear that when you get close to the, the peak or the edge, you lose control. You, you, on the way up, you're able to stress yourself a bit or do a bit of this or do a bit of that or present to a few senior people. That's okay. But when you get near the top and it's really affecting you, then I don't know who controls you. Um, mm. The person that picks you up afterwards. Yeah. I've always loved comfort zones. And we do have this tradition of saying, get out of your comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. Get you think, in your comfort zone. Really? You think it's better in your comfort zone than kind of stretching yourself beyond it? Yeah, well, well get in your comfort zone. Know what it is. Go mm. into street there. Get strength. Yeah. Revitalise yourself. And then operate at the boundaries and, and tickle them a little bit every now right. and then. I guess that's how work could bring you joy, I suppose. If you're in your comfort zone, that's a nice place to be, isn't it? <laughs> you're yeah, right. So often well, you kind of you I, get into your comfort zone and you're being told to like, you know, you're being nudged out there. Yeah. To develop. If you're being nudged and pushed out. And if you're being taught that, you know, like um, real men don't eat quiche, real workers <laughs> live in a comfort zone. I've never heard that about the quiche. <laughs> It was from a movie, I think. <laughs> oh, no, I'm showing my age here. Please. Like, looking now, you you could safely look back and say, well, you had your career. You definitely were not an imposter because you never you were never kicked off that ladder. So you made it all the way through, let's say. Um, so you were not an imposter. You did know your stuff and you did bring value to the organisation. So if you could go back now to your younger self that self that was outside the room about to give a presentation feeling like an imposter, what would you say to him? Golly. I don't know. What would I say? What could I have done with hearing? Um, well, this is... Uh, this is the answer. It's not a quick one. I'm sorry. But what I would say is that imposter syndrome tends to be triggered by something. So forget the imposter bit and focus on the trigger. And in my case, I talked about having to do presentations for the COO. The trigger then was that my very big boss was sitting in listening to the call with my boss and part way through i got a ping from my boss that said um, big boss doesn't think this is going really well and that just hit me and it stayed with me forever and mm. i really struggled mm. When I was having my therapy, this kept coming up. And what I got to accept was focus on that trigger. And I accepted that she had the right to express an opinion. 
I had a right not to react to it. And I just left it at that. Um, so I'd say to myself, don't worry about the imposter bit. You can't decide on that. But find out what your triggers are. Find out what are the things, what are the things that rock your boat that make you really excited and embrace those. But what are the things that bring butterflies to your tummy that you wish you didn't have to do or that you know might put you in an awkward situation where you say or do things you wish you had not said or done and work on those. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's not an easy question. It's a good one. <laughs> um, you've talked a lot about butterflies. And um, when I interviewed you previously, you talked about another physical reaction to work or thinking about work. And that was a pain in your chest, which yeah. was sort of triggered by the memories of of being under pressure and maybe that example that you just gave I mean that sounds very very stressful um you and you mentioned that you had experienced burnout can you talk a bit more about that how how that felt and and, and what kind of led you down that path towards burnout um it it, it was a number of things um I've I have epilepsy and I hadn't had any seizures for 20 years and then I had one driving my car um, this was before the ICU episode um, and I'd always believed that as long as I took my tablets I could do anything I wanted and then I realized that wasn't true and it interrupted my life I had depression coming on because I, I I take uh, a form of medicine and, and depression can be a side effect of that um, I was I then had musculoskeletal issues for many many years um, and finally after 16 years it was diagnosed as ankylosing spondylitis which is an inflammatory arthritis um, and so that meant I had to start taking injections every fortnight and having tiny doses of chemo each Wednesday, um, which I'll carry on taking. And all these things were coming together. And, and as I found a solution to one, um, so depression, the solution was going out for walks, then the other would take that away. So I'd get flare-ups in my foot and I couldn't walk um, and then on top of that um, I came from the same pod as my mum and um, she uh, died in the first week of April 2020 and I couldn't go because I'm uh, immunosuppressant and it was difficult and <clears throat> it was it was quite a tough time 
And all these things came together and then I was looking for somewhere to hide. And, you know, at the same time I'd been in intensive care and uh, I didn't really know what to do, to be honest. And, and I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but um, <laughs> the burnout came, I think the burnout came from chasing the end of a rainbow that wasn't there. Yeah. Well, Always looking for something different mm -hmm. and uh, feeling naked. So when, when something happened, I was vulnerable. Um, I The other thing that came out of this, though, was for the first time, I really appreciated how much people loved me. And I don't want that to sound like a sorry for myself thing. It was more a case of I'd, I'd never accept, I'd never bothered with it. But all of a sudden, I saw people, you know, like a box set of the thick of it came from someone who knew how much I enjoyed it and thought yeah. that would him up. Others sent me other little treats, or there'd be phone calls or messages. Um, my my sister was at the house at the drop of a hat. Um, my wife, my kids, golly, you know, yeah. I can them back. Um, and that was a massive positive that came out of it. And that's what I held on to. That's what got me through the burnout, got me through the physical and other challenges. And it's what's helping me now um, as I try to, to, to get my mental health back to an even keel. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm doing well. I've been, I've, I've not seen a therapist for three or four months, which is great. I've got a little kit bag. That's the other thing I'd encourage anyone to do. Get yourself a kit bag when you're <laughs> working and it's, Imagine the rainy day and what's going to be in it. It might just be a bar of chocolate. It might be a piece of music. But have yourself a little kit bag or a little box somewhere. So when you feel really, insert bleep, off, reach for it. Enjoy. Have a little bit of a selfish moment and spoil yourself. Is that a physical kit bag? Yeah. A little box. Yeah. Put in it bar of chocolate, whatever it is for you. If there are if there are certain things, if there are things that make you feel good, if there's a wristband from hospital when one of your kids was born, or if the you know if you do have a favourite bar of chocolate, or if you have a photograph of somebody, or even a book or some poems. I've got there's a lovely poem I I have John O'Donoghue, but now's the time to rest. Um, put those things somewhere and reach for them and just sit there and enjoy it oh i mean there's so much in that answer tom thank you again for being so open and and let me just say how sorry i am to hear about your mom i know it was a very sudden death and and right in the middle of covid that must have been so difficult um I can hear it in your voice, obviously, it's really difficult. But thank you for, for sharing, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, you did talk about that when, when I interviewed you as well, about how it revealed a vulnerability and humility that you hadn't tapped into before. 
Mm. Um, that's really powerful to think about. And and once again, you've sort of flipped things on its head a little bit because when I when I asked you about burnout in my mind, I was thinking about burnout during a career, during your work time when you know you're throwing yourself into your work and you're working all hours and you're exhausted and you're not giving yourself enough rest time or I don't know really I was imagining that your answer would be focused on burnout during work because you did um you did mention that that happened to you in the height of your career as well but actually you're you're right to share the perspective of burnout in other parts of life it's not just like that spectrum of work-life balance is so broad and you can experience burnout in retirement, which is something I hadn't really considered before. So thank you for that. That's really, really enlightening. And I think this practical idea of having a kit bag, like your own kind of first aid kit, if you like, uh, ready for when you might need it, is a really interesting one. I've never come across that before. Mm. And I, I wonder if if you just take a minute to think, well, what would I put in my kit bag? What would cheer me up, you know? I, I, I think um, that in itself is a worthwhile exercise. Yeah. What would you put in it? Because it's just to be focused on taking your mind off, focusing on the things that are special and that matter to you, and just having enjoying that moment or getting fat on chocolate, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it, it, I got the idea from... Um, with with the ankylosing spondylitis and it's the chronic pain, then uh, I was on a a course with a, a physio, a rheumatologist, and a psychologist working together because it affects the whole body, and they talked about this kit bag, and now doing the crisis volunteering, we talk to people about having different skills to help them, um, and I wish I'd done the crisis volunteering before. Um, because there are so many things that we can do that help ground ourselves. And I guess going back to burnout at work, um, it's important that we can ground ourselves, even if that's just breathing exercises, even if it's just one deep breath. Um, There's so much there that we can do that can help. Um, I was thinking also, you might want to put in your kit bag um, something to remind you about what you love about your work because if you're working to the extent that you're reaching a burnout I suppose at some point you you really wanted to do that job or that work maybe you didn't I don't know but you know it's again this this idea that having work-life balance doesn't necessarily mean reducing the work side and increasing the life side it could be just reconnecting with what what brings you joy at work and, and accepting that exactly I mean, I, I guess if there is a, a guide, it is put in your kit bag things that will make you feel good or relaxed or happier, whatever that might be. Oh, that's a lovely idea. Thank you. You've mentioned managing your passions quite a few times and... Um, I wonder what your view is on on happiness at work. Like, how important is it that you love what you do in order to feel balanced? I, th- I think I'm not being awkward here, but I think those are two different things. 
I think happiness at work is really important. I don't think it's essential to love what you do. Um, but you need to feel happy when you're doing it. <laughs> if yeah. You get the point. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the happiness which will come from personal sense of achievement, the quality of relationships around you, all of those topics, I think, is uh, are a, and in fact, it's almost a KPI for when it's time to think about something else, um, or about time to reinvent yourself. Loving what you do, um, the more you can love what you do, the better. But we have to acknowledge that there are going to be times when there are significant jobs that we're not going to enjoy. Um, but if we've got enough of a grounding in a job that we care about, where we know we're delivering value, then we can get through the tough stuff. Yeah. Uh, but we have to really reflect carefully because otherwise, um, if we're not able to use our strengths when we go through the tough stuff, then it gets very lonely. You know, so I, I think I'd, I'd add in being happy, utilizing your strengths and loving. And the two key ones, I think, are being happy and using your strengths. One of the recent interviews that I've done on my blog is um, a woman who works as a lawyer, and she she referred to that she you know, she enjoys her job and and you know, it pays her enough to to live on, um, but it's not something that she's particularly passionate about. But it works in her lifestyle. She's satisfied and she's content with that, and yeah. that sits a bit apart from other people I've spoken to that, or even the way you've described, you know, working as your hobby and you love it and you're totally passionate about. Um, but she she feels totally content with her work life balance. Actually, it's enough. It's satisfying enough. Um, so I suppose it's nice to know that there isn't that prerequisite that in order to feel work-life balance, you have to be you have to be living the dream in your career. You can get that from the bigger picture of your life as well as just your work side. Yeah, and and using the language in your original question, that's it. Sounds like that lady has focused on the happiness side. It fits her lifestyle it delivers what she needs it to deliver and that will make her happy. Um, but it's not a job that, that she loves. My youngest son, at the moment, I would say he's in that position. Um, and there's something else that, that he loves even more that he'd like to move towards in, in time. The danger at the same time is if we love what we do 100% of the time, if we could love as well, what we do 100% of the time. Um, that's when you really are at risk of burnout and where managing that passion is critical. Because if you, like when I was in Japan, I was working from, I don't know, 6 a.m. till midnight because of the time zones. Um, and I was loving it. Um, but it, it nearly finished me. Equally, just very recently with the crisis volunteering, I was chatting to um, a couple of other volunteers on a, um, a feedback session yesterday, and we'd all faced a bit of burnout on, on the what we call the platform. 
Yeah. I haven't volunteered for two weeks. So I realized I just needed to take a break. But one person said, well, actually, taking a break is also a sign of burnout. Hmm. And I wonder if that would apply at work. This isn't something that often comes up when I'm talking to men for the blog. Uh, mostly this comes up when I'm interviewing women, but very few men mention guilt, but you have. And, and you mentioned the sort of the generational changes as well of the way that working fathers are now compared to your generation and the time when you were mostly working. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued to hear kind of what your take is on, on this idea of guilt and also what your view is of the movement of shared parental leave and shared childcare. Um, what's, your, what's your views of the future now for men in the workplace? I think the, the first thing that men need to do much more of is think about the role of women in the workplace. Um, because the next big change and the, the next big, forgive the word, liberation will come because men are aware that they're part of the problem and they also have part of the solution. Um, I hope that one of the things that we get back, that we keep from COVID is the ability to work from home. Um, you know, if you think of a lot of the HR efforts about retaining people, then I'm sure it's much easier in certain circumstances to retain people when they can work from home. So I, I'm quite positive about the future. Um, I am depressed about the fact that I've lost my office. I'm now sitting in the bedroom. I had a lovely office downstairs, <laughs> but because because I don't bring a, a check in and I'm a kept man, Barbara <laughs> gets the office. <laughs> okay, um, but that's a very small price to pay. Um, on the guilt side, yeah, the guilt. I guess I was sort of in transition of generations on this. And, and I, the story I tell was when I first, um, early on in my career, I got a paycheck and I bought myself a suitcase, a briefcase, because we had briefcases, not rucksacks. And I bought this wonderful Samsonite briefcase that was um, only about five or six centimetres wide got home and my dad flipped uh, he said when you get to my stage in your career Tom you can have a briefcase like that <laughs> your stage you should have a big ruddy fat one because you need to take all the work home with you <laughs> and, um, but the essence of that there was you need to take the work home with you you need to work 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 and part of the reward is you get a narrow briefcase when you're older. Mm. And those were unhelpful thoughts. Um, and I don't think they're, they're true at, at all. Um, and it means that it is very easy to feel guilty. I mean, when I first started working from home, probably five years ago, because my employer was very open to people working from home, at the beginning, I felt guilty. And 
um, I felt as though I needed to be able to signal to folk that I was working. What happened? How do people signal? Well, I hazard a guess that there's a lot of people working from home at the moment who are doing more conference calls than they've ever done in their life. And possibly a larger number of them aren't really that necessary. But it's a way of signaling to others that we're working because we can see each other. Um, and we have so many people working longer hours because we're worried that people will think we're not working. Um, I, I, it, guilt, I'm, I'm glad I'm not working now. I'm not sure I could cope with the guilt. I'd be... Uh, uh, so you think, you think of the guilt more on the work side then than on the life side? Well, we've touched on the guilt from the life side. Mm. was significant in that um, I felt like I was working to the detriment of my family. Yeah. Um, I was, wasn't working to live. I was living to work. In fact, if we could call it life-work balance, it would be better. Mm. But it was, you know, the work was preeminent, the preeminent part of it. And, and of course, we always, when we think of the balance, you know, whether it's 50-50, 75-20, it's zero-sum, but it's also linear if you think visually, but in practice, it's not like that. You don't do 50% of your day as work and then 50% life. The two overlap. So I, when I talked about what I went through a couple of years ago and some of those struggles, they were also um, very, very relevant to work. They all happened within... The, the confines of my private life but they affected my work in a massive massive way yeah i think that's a really important message to to bear in mind for, for leaders of organizations for employers to mm. think that yeah people aren't just linear they're not just there for the seven or eight hours during the day there's actually other stuff going on for them in the remaining time of their days so and yeah. that might have an impact on their work as well. So I, that's, that's yeah. a useful thing to be reminded of, actually. It is, because, you know, when you go into work, you don't hang up your conscience at the front door. <laughs> and and we, were used, we used to be expected to do that. So an organisation wouldn't have a view on things because all the consciences were hanging up on the, at the front door. Um, now, I love to see that more companies are taking a stance on issues because everyone's allowed to use their conscience and that will help with work-life balance it will mean that work is more aligned with your personal values and that is that is important and that's another lovely change that's happening um, you could be sarcastic or cynical about the reasons for it um, but who cares um, it, there is a change there and, 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 and yeah. the human face of work is something to be celebrated. Yeah. Oh, Tom, we're, we're almost out of time. I think just to, to finish off, I think on this theme of leadership and being your, your full self at work, I wonder if you could just share the story that you told me about your, the boss, like the chair of your first 
organization who left you a note on the desk one day do you know what I'm referring to yeah go on tell us that story because I think it's such a lovely one um, to finish on and um inspiring for any any aspiring leaders that might be listening to this so this was October 1987 I'd been working for five months uh, I was working at a company called BNFL, British Nuclear Fuels, and my chair was a guy called Sir Christopher Harding. And he was going off for a meeting in, in Europe, and so I had to do a briefing note for him. And I, I was, uh, uh, I had no imposter syndrome at that stage. I was so ignorant that I, I'd just dive in and do anything. So I did the briefing note. And then a couple of weeks later, um, he walked round, we, we were all on the same floor, he walked round to, to where I was and handed me a little scrap of paper. And it said, from the chairman's office, and written in ink, it said, dear Mr. McLaughlin, um, I just wanted, to, please forgive me for being so late, but I wanted to thank you for the briefing note on the European community as it was called. Um, it was most helpful, and I'm very grateful. Yours sincerely, Christopher Harding. And I still have that note. Um, it's, it's not within arm's reach, it's two arm's reaches away from me. <laughs> and that was October 1987. And it, it taught uh, that as leaders, first of all, we need to catch people out doing something right. And secondly, we need to be aware that a thank you is so powerful, is so, so powerful. And people like Tom McLaughlin will carry that little thank you note with them for what are we on now? 35 years. And I still can. Mm -hmm. um, and that, for anyone who is or aspires to be a leader, is don't forget to say thank you. Yeah, that's the kind of thing you might want to put in your kit bag. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, because I think it does have a massive impact on work-life balance. If you feel like you're being appreciated at work, recognised, um, adding value, you know, like it's a worthwhile way to spend your time, yeah. um, that that can have a massive impact. And and I think leaders do have that power to, by, by the smallest, smallest gesture, can have such a massive impact on a person's work-life balance. Yeah, two minutes input, 35 years output. Wow. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. Oh, Tom, I think that's a lovely note to wrap up on. And I think, you know, I think there are two bits of homework that I would, uh, <laughs> I would challenge anyone listening to this podcast to do. Firstly, think about what you'd put in a kit bag. And secondly, write a thank you note to somebody that you appreciate. How about that? That would be fantastic. I would be chuffed to bits <laughs> if anyone does either of those. Uh, well, if, you, if you're listening and you do those things, get in touch and let me know. Um, Tom, thank you so, so much for coming back to speak to me again about your, um, your work-life balance and your incredibly powerful story. I'm pleased to hear that you're doing so well and working more like you want to be. Um, and I'm sure making a huge difference to lots of people's lives that you help through your crisis work. And Dahlia, thank you back from me. It's been a privilege. I've loved the way it's required me to reflect 
and I've learned a lot about myself through the process. And I think your program, your, your podcast and your blogs are going to be of immense value to lots of people. So thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Tom. been Fine Balance, the podcast that explores work-life balance choices one story at a time. With me, Dahlia Wittenberg. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe for future episodes on your usual podcast provider. You can find the link to Tom's work-life balance profile and those of the other people I've interviewed on my blog, Fine Balance, in the show notes. Or go to www.a-fine-balance.com. For updates, follow at a fine balance underscore blog on Facebook or Instagram. Until next time, goodbye.